Hello, listeners. Before we jump into this week's episode, I'd like to give some brief content warnings. This episode contains profanity and explicit discussions of sex and sexuality, both irreverent and academic in tone. And now, here we go. Welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we talk about media that just does its very best to depict the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I'm Julia, your resident Greek literature specialist and linguist, sort of. Um, And I'm Allison, your uh, resident Roman archaeologist slash vague late antique person. And this week we're going to be talking about the first episode of Troy, Fall of a City, the 2018 Netflix original miniseries. Uh, Important note, this is the first part of a four-part series on this eight-part series. (laughs) We will not be doing them in evenly numbered (laughs) episode chunks because on this podcast we do what we want. So I'm going to hand over to Allison to... Uh, give us a summary. Yeah, I'm going to give you a very disjointed summary because this episode is disjointed. It jumps from one random thing to another. Uh, So we start off with Paris, uh, who is a shepherd, and the gods out of nowhere just kind of show up and are like, quick, choose a goddess um, out of Athena, Aphrodite, or Hera. And he's like, okay, I choose Aphrodite because Aphrodite told me she'd give me the hottest woman. And that seems like a great deal to me. Um, And the gods disappear again. And he's like, wait, where's my hot lady? Um, So he's kind of pissed about this. And then eventually he uh, ends up in the city of Troy because he, like, sees the Trojan princes and is like, I'm going to fight you. Turns out he's actually one of the children of the king of Troy, Priam, and he's their long lost son. And they find out because of a birthmark. Um, And so then later uh, his dad is like, I'm going to send you on a diplomatic mission. And his diplomatic mission is to Sparta. So the queen of Sparta is Helen, and he's like, damn, this must be my hot lady. And so he becomes obsessed with Helen. And that's basically the episode. I will make I will make two adjustments to this summary. <laughs> One of them is that he does bone Helen. Oh yeah. I was I the I so the sex was so annoying to me in the show that I basically have just blocked it out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's important to note that he does, like, convince her to have sex with him before they leave Sparta together. Menelaus is away for stupid reasons. We'll get to that. (laughs) And then at the end, he leaves Sparta. I'm making big air quotes. Without Helen. Yes, totally without Helen. Um, They show very pointedly a large human-sized box that gets loaded onto the boat um i wonder what's in that box but we come to the end of the episode without actually seeing into the box even though everyone knows what's in the box so we will preserve the illusion (laughs) that paris has left sparta without helen so before we jump into the many exciting things that we have to say about the first episode of troy fall of a city it is important that we declare whether or not we liked it Allison, I welcome you to go first. <laughs> this is bad. It's so bad. And, you know, I have seen other Troy media. 
I've seen the Troy movie. I'm not a big fan of the Troy movie, but this is significantly worse in every single way. It's just not good at all. So you did not like it? No, I did not like it. Okay. I I would like to be very candid. I also did not (laughs) like it. I did not like it at all. It is, as Allison said, quite eloquently, it's so bad. (laughs) There's really no other words for this other than just it's completely bad on every level. Yeah. So let's get into some stuff about why it's bad. First of all, time for an important rant from me, a Greek epic scholar. The Trojan War didn't happen. I just, I need to get that out of the way. I know that most people know this and don't consume Troy Fall of a City or Troy 2004 or any other piece of Achilles-related media or Troy-related media thinking that this is about history, but it is also very easy to be misled by stuff on the internet. Like, there is maybe debatably some grounding in history, and we'll come to that in one second. Allison has archaeologist opinions about this, but suffice to say that as far as anybody knows, the events of the Trojan War, as described in the Homeric epics, it didn't happen like that. Although we will be talking to some degree about real-world stuff that anchors the the geography and chronology and and you know, the customs of, that are depicted in the Homeric epics, none of this stuff happened. To touch on the archaeology a little bit, there is a site that modern scholars think like ancient peoples were referring to when they were talking about Troy. And so it's like kind of sort of on the coast of modern Turkey and it's called Hisarlik and it's a Bronze Age site. So Bronze Age is like a thousand to like 2000 BCE roughly three to 4,000 years ago is the time frame we're talking about. And there is actually some destruction layers at Hisarlik. Whether those destruction layers are the result of a war, we don't really have an idea, any ideas. Um, and when I say destruction layers, I mean like, I think usually it's basically just like widespread burning, um, I think is how it shows up. So, I mean, there may have been a war at some point at Hisarlik, unsurprisingly, because this was the ancient world and people fought in wars with each other all the time. But it it's not like there's any, like, specific thing that Homer is, like, drawing on necessarily. Like, this is an invented text, not a historical document. Yeah, our friend Heinrich Schliemann went and dug up his Harlick in at the turn of the century, roughly. Yeah. And was like, I've discovered Troy, which at the time was incredible because before that, nobody even remotely believed that any of this could even have a tiny bit of like connection Mm -hmm. with reality so the fact that this man was so obsessed with homer that he just like went and dug it up and was like hey look what i found this is actually like that he found anything even remotely close was pretty fantastic but also he destroyed a lot of stuff and oh yeah we may come to talk about heinrich schliemann a little bit more he's an interesting fellow and we can We could talk about him a little bit more in the future. Um, But yeah, suffice to say, anything like historical or archaeological that we really have to do with the Trojan War, it's pretty thin. A lot of stuff got damaged. 
there's some suggestions of stuff that are kind of fun and exciting if you're really invested in making this be history, but it's not history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have spent enough time on this. <laughs> it is my own particular soapbox, but we have spent enough time on it. So let's talk about Troy Fall of a City, the oh. most just bad, terrible, rubbish piece of garbage television that I have seen recently. Yeah, it's it's bad. I think maybe we should start with, like, I don't necessarily have this particularly strong feeling that, like, it should hew perfectly to source material, but it's that it doesn't use the source material in any sort of, like, intelligent or thoughtful way. Like, this is not a period romance, and there are specific things about this text and this these stories that make them compelling and interesting, and about these characters that make them compelling and interesting, that aren't Paris was a philanderer who loved to fuck bitches. <laughs> so, a lot of the stuff in this episode is about Paris the story that is referred to as the judgment of Paris, where he chooses between the three goddesses, and all of that stuff, or almost all of it, is later. We get it from first and second century AD sources, by and large, which doesn't mean that the story didn't exist before. It probably did. For one, there's art. Mm -hmm. There's fun Greek vase paintings. Um, that, although they, I don't know if any of them really have an apple, but there's some version of this story that yeah. seems to show up on these vase paintings that are from, you know, the 6th century BCE. Yeah. Just a note for the layman, when we're talking about the 6th century BCE, we're talking about, like, the 500s, not the 600s. Yes. So, the way it works is, like, 600 to 501 is the 6th century BCE. In any case, so what we're talking about is source material that primarily dates from the 1st and 2nd century CE or AD. Some people would be more familiar with that. When, as far as we know, the text of Homer was kind of crystallizing or starting to become standardized a little bit in, like, the 9th... Yeah. Yeah. 9th or 8th century... Maybe. It's really hard to tell. And of course, the other thing is that the actual text of Homer that we have now might have been solid by the time you get to roughly the 6th century, but most of the texts of it that we actually have, like the manuscripts we have, are all significantly later than that, like at least 500 years later. It's all a mess. We don't know when any of this stuff comes from, and a lot of it has cross-influence. So... I will just say, Homer date scholars, if you're listening to this, please don't kill us. Um, we know the date is bad and confusing. It's early sometime in Greek history. <laughs> um, I will say that the late dates don't make any sense, though. Those are stupid. If you think that, th that the Iliad is from the, like, 5th century, I I'm pretty confident in saying that you're completely wrong. <laughs> Beyond that, I have no confidence in saying that anybody is wrong about anything. Yeah. <laughs> Suffice to say, for anybody who is not a Homer scholar, <laughs> this is fiercely debated. People have really strong opinions. There are a lot of theories about how the Homeric text happened, at what stage, how long it continued to change. It's a mess. In any case, in the Homeric text, 
there is one reference in the Iliad anyways, there is one reference to the judgment of Paris. It is in book 24 of the Iliad, lines kind of 25 to 30, approximately. There are two lines that very specifically say Paris offended Hera and Athena by snubbing them or offering them insult when they, with Aphrodite, visited his house when he was a shepherd and he showed favor to Aphrodite instead, who gifted him with Helen essentially. And even that, according to the footnotes in Carolyn Alexander's excellent English translation of the Iliad, uh, 2018, I believe, even that is kind of debated. And some commentate, like modern commentators on the Iliad believe that those lines might have been put in later. So really, everything, basically everything in this episode of Troy Fall of a City does not come from Homer. Yeah, this is some other thing that these guys are doing. I will point out that they say um, at the very beginning in text, inspired by Homer and the Greek myths, which I is... also wrote that down in my notes because... It's like the Greek, Homer and the Greek myths. What is that supposed to mean? Especially since, again, one of the sources for this Paris story... In fact, two of the most detailed sources for a lot of this Paris stuff are Ovid, who was very much a Roman. Yes. (laughs) And Lucian of Samizata, who was a Roman era author. Yeah, writing in Greek, but like, I don't even think he was from Rome, but like he was Roman period. And yeah, they're not the Greek myths. They're not the Greek myths anymore, really. They're like Roman versions of the Greek myths, which is fine. These are the sources we have, but like... Don't say Homer and the Greek myths, say Homer and other antique authors or something. A lot of the stuff that people think as part of the sort of canon of Greek mythology is actually from Ovid. So, I mean, you know, in sort of the, like, modern perception of the Greek myths, a lot of these stories are for the first time told in Ovid or in their particular form that they show up in told in Ovid. So, I mean, it's not exactly inaccurate to say that Ovid is part of the Greek myths, but I just hate the phrase the Greek myths because it's taking a large body of texts and really condensing it into something. (laughs) All three words in the phrase the Greek myths are doing a lot of work. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. They are doing a lot of work. So, yeah, <laughs> that is that is an important thing to know when we're talking about, like, th- what stuff are they using? What are they doing with it? Um, and, I mean, I'll say this. I think it's fine to include and adapt this peripheral material, but they kind of used it all just to, like, make Paris out to be a big fuckboy who doesn't care about anything and has no responsibility and just makes this kind of one-off bullshit decision that, okay, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose Aphrodite because I want a super sexy wife because this sexy woman that I'm already having sex with isn't sexy enough. I said the word sexy a lot (laughs) of times. So many times. (laughs) Yeah, and well, I mean, I think the thing is, is like, by using this um Troy story they're really trying to like they're they're trying to do like a modern hero narrative so they're trying to sort of make like rags to riches type thing but it just is 
it, it's just stupid because Paris is a dumbass. <laughs> but the other thing is, it's also stupid because they're making Paris out to be essentially the Iliadic Paris, who is completely hopeless and amorous to the point of being useless for anything else. But in this peripheral stuff from antiquity, the reason that Paris gets chosen to do the judgment is because he has already proved himself to the gods to be a genuinely, like, honest and noble of spirit person, even before he knows he's a prince. Which is why, later on, when this whole who is the fairest of them all thing comes up, which they don't mention in the show, but it's a thing, that's why the gods choose him. It's not for no reason or just kind of arbitrarily or because Zeus knows that this guy is going to cause problems, which seems to be what's kind of implied by the show that it's already his fate to cause all these problems. Mm. So they put it on him. But actually, no, they chose him because he's a kind of a good dude. Like, he causes all of these problems, yes, but mostly later under the influence of Aphrodite, who kind of strikes him down with this lust, which is, she does that a lot. Yeah. She is responsible for a lot of tragedies because she deci- she just decides that somebody's going to be big in lust for somebody else, <laughs> regardless of their own will for it, too, even when they're very resistant, like, it doesn't matter anymore. Um, human will is frequently either paired with or kind of like like doubled against or subsumed by divine will in in greek mythology and in greek stories yeah and i think the thing about that is that i think the the show really like fails to deal well with this like really important theme in a lot of like ancient greek texts about fate that's a really central thing about like the Iliad is sort of not being in control of your own life and what is going to happen to you. And they like try to deal with it because there's all these things in the first episode that happen largely around the character of Cassandra, who's like prophetic, um, which yeah, I also have some thoughts about. And but like it's all just like, ooh, mysterious prophecy instead of actually like meaningfully dealing with what it means to to have a sort of predestination and to sort of not be in control of your own life. And to live in a world where not only does everybody believe in the gods and that the gods like can control your will and change your mind about stuff and influence events, but where in the world of the show that actually does happen. This is the one thing that I do like about this adaptation and other people have said this in reviews of this show before, this is not an original point, but the fact that they actually have the deities, the gods and goddesses be there and have them have powers and be actively interfering with stuff in a way that is creating an effect, and also that there's sort of a sense that Zeus is orchestrating a lot of this, even though it's Aphrodite's blessing that causes Paris to fall in love with Helen, but that Zeus is clearly pulling strings at several times in the episode, which is like a major thing in the Iliad, that Zeus is still the king of all the gods and it's his will that ultimately decides mm-hmm. what happens. Like, a lot of adaptations of the Iliad and of Homer in general, of the Odyssey too, just erase the divine or the supernatural. And I think it preserves the themes in a really interesting way. Like, I don't think it's impossible to have the themes of the Iliad without 
the gods, but I do think that it becomes less meaningful in some way to talk about fate or destiny when arguably, when implicitly the gods don't actually exist and therefore fate and destiny aren't really real and so it's still people making all these decisions. Like, that's just a different theme. It's a different statement about what, about the events. Whereas this, it's much more that, like, human divine conflict. I'm definitely exposing myself as a lover of fantasy right now, but I genuinely think that, like, stories that include supernatural elements can touch on certain themes and and feelings about the human experience and themes in stories and elements in stories that we have always explored that go way way back in time because they're very common to the things that we like to think about as people. I think including the supernatural really it helps with that stuff and and I I like media that doesn't shy away from being fantasy, which this doesn't. Yeah, um, it would be sure, sure would be nice if they had actually, you know, uh, gone, ran with the themes instead of, I don't really know what they were trying to do or say, honestly. It felt like they had source material that they were using and just didn't really know what to do with it because all the supernatural stuff feels very like, well, it's in the text, so we're putting it in here for like dramatic effect but it isn't like thematically meaningful in any way shape or form i will say it's hard to talk about the themes when we haven't watched the whole show yeah like disclaimer i have only watched this one episode allison's watched a couple more but not in quite a long time and so some of this stuff the the meaningfulness of the inclusion of the supernatural and this idea of fate i think will become clearer as we go on in the show but yeah, Allison's very much correct that for this first episode, it just feels kind of thrown in. And I would like to see them wrestle with it a little bit more in, in upcoming episodes. So I guess we'll see. That's something to wait on and we'll come back to it in future discussions of, of future episodes. I have one more note about the gods and then we can move on to other stuff. Okay. My my final note about the gods, and this is maybe, well, this will lead us into the next thing. The gods do not have any identifiable iconography in their costumes. <sighs> the costuming in this show is so bad, and we'll talk about this in more detail in a second, but it's really embarrassing, to be frank, to decide to depict the Greek gods who have this really recognizable look. All of them have recognizable iconography. All of them have stuff that identifies them as who they are to the point where in basically any, like a trained classical scholar can point at any piece of art of all of these extremely cookie cutter, like buff dudes and sexy half naked ladies and be (laughs) like, that's Hera, that's Athena, that's Zeus, that's Poseidon, because they all have attributes that identify them. And the fact that when we got that first scene of Paris meeting the five, he meets five deities in that scene, Hermes, Zeus, Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite. And I couldn't identify any of them at first glance. No. The only one who sort of vaguely had some iconography is Athena is sort of wearing what looks kind of like a sexy breastplate. But that's about it. 
She's wearing this shitty, like, crop top like leather, leather armor. Thing. She should yeah. be wearing a bronze fucking breastplate and a helmet and carrying a shield. Yeah. She's a frontline fighter. Well, not ex- I mean, not she exactly. She has an aspect. But there she, is a goddamn yeah. statue of her in Athens that is referred to as the Athena Promachos, the Athena at the front line of battle. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's a... But yeah, Athena's always de- depicted at the very least with her helmet and um, with her... With the Aegis, which is like a Zeus. Yeah, I guess sometimes not with it's, Aegis. But it's usually a shield though, or a shield-like thing. Yeah. Sometimes it's kind of a cloaky thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, still, the helmet is the big one, and she has this, like, weird, like, ray style weird bun hat thing going on. She has these three buns oh. in, like, a mohawk down the top of her head, which kind of suggests a Grecian helmet, but it's really like, it wasn't recognizable. Also, Hera does have peacock feathers sewed into the back of her cloak. I didn't catch that. But again, it's really subtle. And I mean, the gods, I only recognize them because, like, Hermes gets called by his name. And then also at one point, Hermes says something about Zeus and there's, like, a cut to Zeus. And so I was like, oh, I guess that's supposed to be Zeus. I don't think that's Zeus. I think it's Ares. No, it is Zeus because he shows up later in the storm and he's bringing the big storm. Oh, Okay. That's the only reason is I. That, that's oh, the only reason I know that, that is Zeus. a weird choice for Zeus. I swear to God, I watched more of the series and it turned out to be Ares. But I guess we'll find out. Um, yeah, no. Suffice to say, the fact that we're even having to argue about this is embarrassing for the makers of this show. Yeah, and you know what though? This isn't like just a problem with the gods. Like they basically go through the whole first episode and they show who is presumably Hector's wife, Andromache, but they never say her name or really meaningfully show in any way her relationship to Hector. Like, the closest thing is at one point they're sitting beside each other at dinner, but if you don't really know the mythology, and, like, I, the first time I watched this, I'm, like, was, like, who the heck is this? Because I wasn't as familiar with the Iliad as I am now, having done some reading of it. But, yeah, it's, like, you have to introduce your characters in the show, like, it's so weird to not only badly use the source material, but then assume your audience knows who all the characters are. I, it's very confusing. So, yeah, I have two things on that. First of all, yes, that is Andromache, which I only know because I was like, is that Andromache? And then I looked at the credits. Yeah. And she's credited. I didn't look up the actress, but I was like, if she appeared at all, that must have been her, the one yeah. who was sitting next to Hector at dinner. And also... uh we do not get a mention of Hecuba's name until 40 minutes into this 50-minute yep. episode. Yep. Uh, Hecuba, in case you missed it, is Priam's wife, the queen of Troy, who we see violently giving birth for the first three minutes of the show. Also, she's giving birth lying down, which annoyed me because this is not giving birth lying down is a modern thing and also a thing that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because you know giving birth in a position that is not lying down means you have gravity to help you give birth yeah so they really fail to suffice to say they really fail to introduce their characters or to meaningfully identify them in a way that would be recognizable even to somebody really familiar with the source material like allison and i are which 
I think just goes to show that this is all kind of ham-handed. Like, one of the only characters who gets identified by name repeatedly in multiple contexts is Cassandra, who you really don't even need to identify repeatedly by name because she's one of the most recognizable characters from anything in the fact that she has visions. Like, yeah. Which also, the fact that she is having visions as a young girl makes no goddamn sense. I am annoyed about this, too. This, yep, mm-hmm. Because uh, um, they didn't need her to be the, like, portent of his evil because they have other ways of that happening. Yeah, um, we even get a scene of the, the priest of Apollo, like, taking an omen at the birth of Paris slash Alexander and it's all dark blood, whatever. So the fact that Cassandra's having visions of it as a tiny child really doesn't it's not necessary and it doesn't make sense and it erases important stuff from her backstory, namely that the reason that, first of all, the reason that nobody believes her about things is that she was given these powers and then turned Apollo away for sex so he cursed her to never be believed. Like, that's a whole thing. I have really strong feelings about Cassandra's mythology mm -hmm. and the fact that they erased that and decided that she just, I guess, arbitrarily has had powers since she was a tiny child and has been weird and cursed this entire time. Also, the fact that people do seem to pay attention to her and take her seriously when she's nervous about stuff also doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, no, and it is a sort of thing, too, that doesn't also doesn't make sense because sort of more broadly in a lot of Greek and Roman writings, it, there's there's really a sense that, like, if somebody has, like, magical powers, like, they are in some way, like, related to the gods. Like, you don't have random mortals showing up with random powers. That's not really a thing that happens. If you have powers, it's because you are the descendant of a god in some way. Um, and if you're otherwise important, like, you can have, you know, be, like, really good in battle, but, like, it's not because you, like, out of nowhere have, like, magical powers. <laughs> yeah. So they just erased all of the interesting stuff about Cassandra and decided that her purpose is to stand in the background looking anxious. <laughs> like, either you need to uh... lean in and have it be that everybody thinks she's crazy, which is what it is in the original text, they all think she's completely fucking nuts, that she's sick, she's off her rocker, she's cursed. That's why no one believes her, because they're all convinced that she's crazy and nothing that comes out of her mouth can be trusted. Or you need to do something, like you need to do something else with her or have her not, not as a child. I, I think we said we were going to do costuming, and then we just never talked about the costuming, so... Yeah, so let's, uh, let's circle back a yeah. little bit. One of the things, yeah. I, so... My biggest costuming gripe is that, well, A, it looks really cheap, and B, there's, there's like, no logic to the costuming. Like, I, yeah. I've watched some, like, costumer people on YouTube review, like, period drama or whatever, and I kind of agree with what they said, that it, that it was like, okay, well, it doesn't need to hew exactly to this, like, particular period. And, I mean, of course, this is fantasy, so it really doesn't need to at all, but it needs to, like take something from the era that is like really evocative whereas they just sort of were like hmm stuff that looks vaguely ancient and they just threw it on people i remember there's a few of the women's dresses that are especially bad because they're like 
tight around like right below the titties and really show the titties which is not at all how like most ancient dresses are designed like people are usually like very covered up unless you're seeing like statues of goddesses or something so it was just like this is like these are modern like very clearly modern silhouettes (laughs) either go for it and try to evoke the like minoan look we get some minoan art of women with their breasts out Mm -hmm. and like let the women be wearing kind of a fitted like bodice or kind of corset type thing below their breasts and just have them have their breasts out when they're wearing fancy or ceremonial clothes or cover them up properly like like don't have them be wearing these weird fitted bodices it's just it doesn't make a lot of sense it doesn't do anything except to serve the kind of modern gaze and it doesn't look very good like i just a lot of the costuming for the men is like Fine, Except for Priam. <laughs> Priam's is, is bad. The eyeshadow or eyeliner that he's got on, the stupid dyed mustache. Every single time he showed up on screen, I laughed. Um, but by and large, beyond that, the men are, like, fine, yeah, I guess. passable, I guess, sort yeah. of. But the women's costuming is pretty heinous. Except for, weirdly, Hermione. Yeah, Hermione's costuming is fine, but I guess they decided sexualizing a 14-year-old girl was a little too weird, um, which I guess they get props for. Yeah. Because she is very covered up in comparison to all the older women, so at least they didn't, like... So her well, hair is down. Well, everybody's hair is down, right? I mean, there is a very, like, this show very, has very much, like, a super modern aesthetic. You can see they're trying to do sexy HBO-style show, and so they went, like, super hardcore on the very, like, modern silhouettes and stuff. But also stuff like the jewelry, where they're like, it looks ancient, but it's so sloppy. It's just, like, a bunch of beads glued onto a headband. There's one point also where Priam is just, like, wearing what, like what looks like a string of like wooden beads that like buddhist monks wear yeah and i'm just like why what yeah like there's so much random jewelry that is thrown on priam and all of the women that looks very cheap and is also like just pulled completely out of thin air let us mention the gold star award for worst piece of costuming in this show Helen's stupid fucking feather necklace. <laughs> I the feather outfit was by far the worst because it was like a like sewn modern like gown and I was like what what is this? It's so bad. I listen, I do not recommend you watch this show, but if you want to like open it on Netflix and like skim through to about halfway through the episode where Helen shows up for the first time and watch her walk into the room wearing that stupid goddamn dress just for the effect of how bad it is that I will endorse yeah Mm -hmm. um and I think it is worth pointing out at this point that like clothing at different periods at different places in the ancient world is definitely like vastly different Um, However, things were limited by technology. So you have a lot less sewing if you have any sewing at all because sewing is hard and you already have to make all the cloth yourself. So usually you're looking at styles of clothes that are just draped and pinned as opposed to sewn together. So that's why you don't tend to see a lot of super fitted stuff, Um, especially Greek and Roman clothing is not very fitted. It's why you see a lot of tunics and stuff. Um, There are other places where they do have more fitted clothing like... You know, you'll see Roman, some Roman art 
depicting barbarians. I'm putting barbarians in scare quotes here. And they're, they'll be like wearing pants. And that's the sign of a barbarian is a pant. Uh, but also just to go very briefly back to the Minoan clothing. So it's worth knowing that anything about the Minoan art is highly debated as to whether it's real and to the degree to which the reconstructions are accurate. Um, because our favorite man, Arthur Evans, really just went whack when he discovered Knossos, which is where a lot of this imagery was, and just like w- took like these two puzzle pieces and just built this fantasy land on top of it. It's It's wild. So while we do have stuff that is sort of recognized by academia as being these images of these fitted bodices with women's of their breast with their breast out there's like you know it's based on like a really tiny fragment of a fresco that we have left um so it, you have to think of it as as conjuncture in a lot of ways yeah we need to transition to something else <laughs> because this costuming crap's just making me mad <laughs> so So I think that maybe this, because you mentioned the Minoans, and I think it's worth talking briefly about the geography of this show, which is also very bad. Yes. There's a couple things. First of all, they use a lot of weird Minoan iconography, even though, like, temporally speaking, that's a little goofy. And also, the Minoan society was located on Crete, the island of Crete, which is south of mainland Greece, kind of out in the middle of the Mediterranean. Yeah. For... Those who don't and know. it is like its own sort of like distinct thing for about 500 years from around 2000 to uh, 1500 is when we really see like the height of the sort of Minoan civilization in scare quotes is the best way to say that. Yeah, the um, Minoans is what we call them. We have a small sample of their writing, but we can't read it. We don't know what they call themselves. We don't know if they spoke proto-greek yeah we, we really like we don't know a lot about them yeah and so yeah the fact that they chose minoan largely minoan rather than mycenaean iconography and and antiquities to use as their set dressing for this show was a little weird yeah i mean i kind of get the impulse to do it because it is sort of very unique and also like mystical and foreign plus then we can get a scene of paris rubbing some plaster off of a fresco and just like rubbing a lady's titties yeah uh uh-huh which is very important and also unclear why there's just like dust on the plaster white dust on the wall like if you were gonna redo a room you wouldn't just like throw some plaster dust on the wall I feel I'm very like, confused by that whole scene. I feel like the implication that we get later, because we later get Paris, like, deriding Menelaus oh, for right. not wanting any culture or whatever. So I think implicitly, like, when Menelaus took over Sparta, he, like, erased the culture of the people who already lived there, which the Minoans did not live there. I, but also, again, like, you'd think he would have, you know, like, gone in and redone the walls. Like, the fact that he's like, oh, there's some dust on the wall, and there's this, like, whole painting underneath. It's really bad. The whole thing with Menelaus, the way this series treats Menelaus's assumption of power in Sparta, how he got it, all of that stuff, like, really messily sloppily done and part of that i think is is a sloppy understanding of the the geography and and where people are from and all that one of the things is that like when menelaus and atreus's father dies during the course of the episode you said menelaus menelaus and atreus's father (laughs) menelaus and agamemnon's father atreus (laughs) dies during the course of this episode which for the record atreus 
has been dead for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, And Menelaus sails off to Crete for the funeral. Atreus was from Mycenae. I was like, where, what are they, where are they pulling this from? I was so confused. Yeah, I think they basically decided maybe that, that Atreus was the king of the Minoans arbitrarily because he's like, because like Agamemnon and Menelaus are the Mycenaeans. So that's like the generation before, Mm -hmm. but like, that's so bad and doesn't make any sense. And also the whole thing of it being like, oh, I miss my home, Mycenae, Sparta sucks, but I guess I'll take it. Like, your father-in-law gave you a whole kingdom. Yeah. You, like, he's a second son. He would have gotten nothing if he'd stayed in Mycenae. I just, it's so wild that he's so weird and bitter about, like, coming second to Agamemnon when he is also one of the great kings because he was given this kingdom and he married the most beautiful woman in the world. Also, the fact that they're like, yeah, Agamemnon fought all of these guys to win her for me when that's not what happens. No. In the original mythos, Tyndareus, who is Helen's father, arranges on the advice of Odysseus to have all of the kings draw lots for Helen's hand so that it's fair. Like, because she's so beautiful that he's afraid that everyone's gonna kill each other for her hand. So they actively avoid anybody fighting anybody else for her because it would have torn the world apart as we see later when, you know, everyone in the world goes to war for her. Yep. (laughs) It's just crazy the whole way that they twisted Menelaus's character to make him into this big asshole who's just bitter about everything for no apparent reason. Like, Menelaus isn't great, but, like, the worst you can say about him in the Iliad really is that he's kind of mediocre. Yeah. He doesn't do a lot. He's actually pretty honorable. He offers to fight Paris one-on-one and just have that be the end of everything. Like, fight me for her. Whoever wins gets to go home with her. The war can be over. And, like he's going to win even so he's a pretty good warrior and like he just wants his wife back yeah so i think what i think the reason they did this is because they have to make menelaus seem like an asshole so paris doesn't seem like an asshole for like courting helen and already married women because they're trying to make paris like they're using paris as the point of view character which is like, incredibly stupid, because Paris is just, at least the way he's portrayed in the Iliad is just not sympathetic. And also the way he's portrayed here is not sympathetic. Like, he's just a terrible, terrible point of view character. So then they do these strange things to the other characters to make Helen's actions make sense, and also to make Paris not seem like the biggest asshole on the planet, even though in the show he still manages to seem like a pretty big asshole. Yeah, from what I understand, they somehow managed to make Agamemnon seem like an even bigger asshole in later episodes, which isn't a huge shock. He is the worst. Yeah. Well, we'll get there. They just, like, they've done all of the stuff. They've changed around a bunch of backstories. They've kind of changed around a bunch of, like, um, geography here for no apparent reason. Also, I guess... Sparta is, like, two days sailing from Troy now, even though, and I looked this up, for those who are interested in, like, knowing stuff about how long it took to travel in the ancient Mediterranean, there's a tool for that. It's called 
Orbis. Um, shout out to Stanford for putting that together. It is very useful uh, for figuring out travel times. And according to that, it would have taken something like a week, seven days, yeah. to get from approximately Troy-ish to approximately Sparta-ish. Yeah. And Paris's like, nose has not healed by the time they arrive. It's just really messy. It's chronologically messy and... It raised questions again for me about where they think Troy is. Because Troy is in Turkey. Yeah. Like, roughly. It's it's at what they, in antiquity, what they called the Hellespont, which is the little, like, le- like water passage from the Aegean into the Black Sea. Yeah, it's, like, a little bit below that. Like, And to some degree, they know that because someone mentions this at some point. Yeah, I think it's Helen who talks about it and is like, yeah, the Troy, Troy's super fabulously wealthy and really, like, importantly placed because all of this trade into the Black Sea passes through there. So they kind of knew where it was, but that doesn't explain why, like, they didn't seem to understand how big the Aegean actually is. I mean, these are, like, American, I think it's an American and British show, and they don't know anything about the Mediterranean, I guess. They've never... Apparently not thought about it for a second the other thing about the fact that troy is in turkey is that like i don't know if any of these people have ever met a turkish person but like a lot of them are pretty dark-skinned actually and the trojans are all real white yeah and it's like so it's not even just like the trojans are like white but they're like british people people from Turkey are, like, they can be dark-skinned, they can be light-skinned, but they don't look fucking British. This is not somewhere, like, if you live on the borders of the Mediterranean, you're not gonna have, like, pale skin and blue eyes. I don't have any issue with race-blind casting to Mm -hmm. some degree, which they did do some of this in this show. They got in a lot of, there was a lot of controversy because they cast a black actor as Achilles, they cast a black actor as Zeus, and that's great. There were definitely African people running around in the ancient Mediterranean, like, being there doing stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's fine. I don't, like, I don't mind that. I'm happy for there to be some, like, European-looking people and some darker people, but I think that the bulk of the people in Turkey should look Turkish. Yeah. Or, like, should look, again, like, vaguely Mediterranean. Like, at least. At least. Uh, the, like, base level is, like, at least a little bit Mediterranean and not Northern European. Like, this is Western Asia. Why yeah. do these people mm-hmm. look Northern European? I. It's so frustrating. <sighs> And frankly, to me, them deciding to cast a black actor as as Achilles, I think there's also a black actor cast as Aeneas that doesn't erase the fact that they just really buggered it up with the Trojans. Yeah. And, with, and like, I don't want, I wouldn't have wanted them to cast the Trojans as mostly dark and the the Greeks as mostly light either. That would have been shitty in a different way. But like, yeah. I really think that they they did a bad job. Yeah, I I really think it's really can well one thing that's really confusing to me is the fact that they cast they're like oh so so diversity means just black people. <laughs> that was super weird. It's like okay, so there's white people and there's black people and that's it and those are the only two ethnicities that exist. Um and I and think 
Indians. Oh, yes. But there's no Indian people. They just mentioned that India is no, a no. place that they I'm know. I'm pretty sure I noticed. I'm pretty exists. sure I spotted a, like, oh, a woman in the background who was Indian. Yes, there and, was. Like, like, quite Indian looking. Like, she was wearing an Indian style, like, veil over her head well, and stuff. I mean, kind of. I mean, yeah, other women was... were wearing similar things. But, yeah, they mention an Indian king at one point. Oh, yes, these silks were a gift from an Indian king oh, who yeah. was courting Helen. Like, the ancient Mediterranean wasn't in touch with India until Alexander the Great. Yeah. I also really feel like, though, the fact that this is something that is really consistent in media about the ancient world, like media related to the Iliad or Greek mythology, is it? it's always, like, Northern European-looking people who are cast. Um, and it's, like, Northern European people were not in the Mediterranean in the Bronze Age, really. Um, you have some trade with Northern Europe, but like largely in the Mediterranean, you have people who look like they come from the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean is hot and sunny, so you have people with darker skin. And it's, it, I really feel like it's just really playing into like our obsession with like whiteness. I don't think it's purposeful. It just doesn't occur to people that people in the ancient Mediterranean from whom like we in the West consider um, and I use I use the West very in air quotes there, yeah. but like that we just think of them as Northern European, as white in the in that sense. We we think of the Greeks as Europeans and forget that Europeans are not all super light skinned Northern European featured like white people yeah well also italians too like south again like people in italy are also like darker skinned because it's sunny there <laughs> and i mean like it's important to remember that it's only in the last kind of hundred years or so that in certainly in north america at least that like italian people were not racialized as like a different group yeah Mm -hmm. Like, it was not that long ago that Mediterranean-looking people and Semitic-looking people were very much racialized as non-white. Yeah. So the fact that the stink that gets thrown up about stuff like this is like, oh, they cast a black person as one of these, like, ancient Mediterranean figures that's so historically inaccurate, and nobody says a damn thing about all these Northern European-looking people who are significantly more historically inaccurate, TM, is because we see them as European, and therefore as white, and there's still a very much like a, this very light-skinned Northern European image of whiteness. Mediterranean people are tend to be on the edges of mainstream whiteness in American and British media. And that's, yeah. like, it shows a lot in this show. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and it's frankly, you probably would have been more likely to see a black person around than a Northern European person around, uh, you know, in the Mediterranean, in the late Bronze Age, because uh, the Mediterranean does, in fact, include parts of Africa. And the Egyptian Empire was very powerful at this point and was doing stuff like, you know, uh, doing dynastic marriages with other people in the Mediterranean. Like, I think, like, possibly other places in sort of the Near East. Like, there were African people who were really involved in, in sort of, like, the Mediterranean sphere of influence in the late Bronze Age. And so the fact that it's, like, white people are in power is just, like, deeply inaccurate. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really bad. I I have several 
aggressive caps lock notes from when I was watching this of like, why are they all so white? Why are they so white? And I mean, again, I've mentioned this, uh, that they cast a, a black person as Achilles, but Achilles doesn't show up in this episode. And they cast a black actor as Zeus. I also think they cast a person of color, though, kind of ambiguous. I, I'm not sure what his ethnicity mm-hmm. is as Hermes. But, like, they're not around a lot. And, I mean, the the one other thing I have to say about this is that by far the lightest skinned and most aggressively Northern European looking person is Aphrodite. Oh, absolutely. Which- she's extremely pale. She's skinny. She's extremely pale. And she has long red hair. Which, that is particularly interesting because Aphrodite is a goddess that is, basically is imported from the Near East. Um, She goes back to goddesses like Ishtar. And I think before that, like, um, it's either, I think it's Inanna. It might be Aana. And she's also a goddess who sometimes isn't even portrayed with a body. Like, she's not always even anthropomorphized. And so the fact that you go from, like, not even anthropomorphized Eastern goddess to skinny Irish lady is, it's a choice. It sure is a decision. Yeah, it's a decision that they made, especially since both of the other two goddesses are significantly darker and kind of more Mediterranean looking in their looks. And, like, again... They don't say this in the show, but anybody who knows anything about this mythos and the Judgment of Paris knows that originally the choice that he's making is who is the fairest, who is the most beautiful of these three goddesses. And the things that they offer him aren't, oh, which of these three blessings do you want the most? They're bribes to try to get him to decide that they're the most beautiful. I I think all of these decisions really show that you can't just cast a bunch of non-white people and be like, that's it, we've done our job, because it's really complicated the way that we interact with race in the modern world. Um, And when you just randomly cast Black people, you end up with situations where you end up reinforcing stereotypes Um, For example, uh, there was a part where I saw all of the slave characters in one shot were uh, not white people, and that was a little bit concerning. It's like they didn't even, you have to think about the optics of where you're putting people of color in your stories, or you just hire people of color to do the stories themselves, because they probably won't make dumbass mistakes like this. It's a lot. They didn't do a good job. I think this is going to be a constant topic on this show is that everybody sure looks like they're from Northern Europe when they sure as heck shouldn't look like that. Yeah, no, they should not. Do we want to revisit gender real quick? I have a couple of things to say about things and I have one random nitpick. Okay, I'll, I'll let you get started uh, okay. with fun gender stuff. Yeah, so everything about the way they did Helen is bad. I fully agree with that. (laughs) Uh, The fact that they decided to go with, oh, she's like super unhappy and like repressed, but she's just like keeping it in. I mean, like, that's fine if you're going to decide that she's going to go away with him because... She's unhappy in Sparta because her husband's an asshole. Like, that's not terrible. But the fact that so much of it is very much Paris pressuring her to, like, spread her wings and fly, TM. 
And spread her wings and fly means running away from her child and her husband to sleep with him. Yeah. <laughs> that's her, that's what run, spreading her wings she, and flying means. she repeatedly, like, she says no again and again. And for him, to, like, tries to get him to leave her alone and stop, like, pursuing her. And he's just, like, he's looking at her all the time. I just, I found it so uncomfortable, the dynamic. I didn't find it believable that she liked him at all. No. (laughs) And to be honest, I don't know. Like, it's just the whole thing is so uncomfortable. And the other thing is this weird dynamic with Hermione, with her daughter. There's this kind of weird scene where she's like, oh, I'm not like my mother. I don't know what to do with men. It's fine. And I don't think that's a bad thing for a young girl who's starting to realize she's about to be pressed into marriage like for her to realize and to express that she's anxious about men that she doesn't know what she's doing and I don't even necessarily think that it's wrong for Paris to try to comfort her but the way the scene is framed and the fact that like there's so much of the framing that positions her as like as a surrogate for her mother and that even Helen makes the assumption that he's like feeling up her daughter in the back room. Yeah, it is it is really weird um and gross. I don't know. Hermione Hermione is really interesting because they also spend a lot of time with Hermione being annoyed that Paris is paying more attention to her mother than to her. Which kind of makes sense. But also, this is a teenage girl who's about to be, like, pressed into marriage. Like, I don't... Yeah, mostly what I feel about Hermione is I feel bad for her. I just feel bad for Hermione because she's been being treated badly and she deserves better. And also, I find it so odd and inexplicable that Helen at one point, like, makes this appeal to Paris. She's like, I can't leave my daughter. And then she promptly leaves her daughter. It's like, that's not believable at all that this woman who has a daughter that, even though she has a bit of a weird relationship with her, like, quite evidently does actually care about her daughter, would suddenly pick up and leave for a random man. And she knows not only that this will, like, cause hurt feelings, but, like, a big diplomatic issue, right? Like, it's completely, it's just completely unexplained. Yeah, there's just, like, there's so much that, like, they just decided that Hermione is going to exist as a character, but only to prop up how obsessed Paris is and how much of a thing it is that, like, oh, yeah, Helen's definitely in love with him, too. Because she does end up throwing away this relationship that they did spend time on in the show and that she ends up, like, that even at the end, Hermione is like, oh, so she rejected you, kind of, too. Implied other men have showed up to try to court Helen away from Menelaus and it hasn't happened because she's a faithful wife and mother. Um, And I mean, because you could go, there are a few other angles they could have gone with this, which is that Paris just takes Helen away by force, which then, of course, does not make him a sympathetic main character. Or that she is, like, bewitched in some way, which I guess you can sort of, they, they could have definitely gone that angle, but they decided to do neither of those things. And Aphrodite does not appear. Aphrodite is Madame not appearing in that sequence, which to me is like 
kind of wild, from what I recall. Anyways. Yeah, she shows up at some point in Sparta at like one of the parties, but that's it. Like she's just kind of there, and she just stares at Paris and then disappears again, which is. I'm not sure what that scene was supposed to communicate, but the time is now um, or whatever. But like, why was she not actively involved? Like, why did we not get a scene of her, like, for example, transforming into the like handmaid who leads Paris to Helen's bower before they hook up? Oh, yeah. Because that would have been perfect. That would have been like, yes, Aphrodite is working to bring these two together in fulfillment of her promise to Paris. That would have actually, like, done something. And you also could have had her, like, be in the scene where Helen is whatever, smoking pot with all her ladies. Because that would have given the idea of, like, oh, the intoxicating power of love, right? Yes. There could have been something there. But there wasn't. Nope, there was nothing. So that scene infuriated me because that seems like the epitome of implying that the women are lesbians specifically for the male gaze because there's all of these there's like the women like leaning into each other and like touching each other and rubbing each other with the feathers and like for some reason some of them have like one breast out it's literally just it's literally just for the male gaze because they don't show the women like kissing each other it's not about like the relationships of any of the women with with each other in any sort of meaningful way it's literally for the male gaze because like that's how it's framed it's paris looking at these sexy women and like enjoying seeing these like ooh the sexy lesbian times that are going on and that pissed me right the fuck off yeah and like helen does like use i'm going to say use drugs in the odyssey but like she uses drugs as a means to accomplish something in that she drugs all of the men to make them stop being so fucking maudlin about (laughs) the Trojan War and go to sleep, like calm down and go to sleep. She is framed as a little bit like something like a witch, as it were, like kind of in the modern sense in that she like uses herbs and stuff to create magic and make magic happen. She has some powers. She she has some association with drugs beyond kind of the normal or the mortal thing. But that's not what this is. This is like she's out there like smoking pot so that she doesn't have to think about her problems, which is such a perversion and a distortion of her association with drugs in the original and how much power the use of of drugs is in Greek media. Like, the idea of uh, pharmacone, which is the Greek word, as, like, just a thing used to get high as opposed to being, like, a thing of kind of real power. Oh, it made me big mad as a Homer scholar. It made you big mad as, like, a queer person with opinions about this, and it made me big mad as a Homer scholar. I mean, I also observed the fetishization, but them deciding to draw on something that does... Once again, them deciding to draw on something that does exist in the original text in some form, and just do nothing with it or do something stupid with it. I mean, I feel like they weren't even intentionally drawing on anything there. I don't think they had, like, I mean, I wasn't even super aware of Helen's association with drugs. So 
if I'm not aware of it, I have serious doubts that they actually were at all aware of that association and were just like, we need to make Helen seem like she wants to escape from her problems, so we're going to have her smoke weed. All right. I don't know if I have any other particular gender notes. Oh, I do have one more gender thing that I want to bring up related to both Helen and her daughter and also related to Hecuba, which is that neither of these women look old enough to have grown children. They sure don't. (laughs) They look real young. Uh, It's particularly heinous with Hecuba, whose children are in their mid-twenties at the late, at the youngest. Like, all of her children are older. And then Helen, like, her daughter is a preteen or a young teen, and... She looks 25. I mean, she does look a little bit. I, I would say she looks about 30. And I would say, though, however, like, that women were often having their first kids at, like, 15 or 16, you know? Like, women would have kids as teenagers. And so, you know, by the time you're 30, it's not unconscionable that you would have a kid who is, like, yeah. 12. I guess, I mean, I guess that's fair. But I do think that, like... But to some degree, I don't think that takes into account the fact that, like, the ex- the life expectancy of a human back then was probably, like, 50 to 60 years. So they should really be more aged just from the fact that they, they functionally live outside. Like, yeah, yeah. Know, I just... But these also, women should like, look older. They well, should look older. Hecuba especially should live older because it's, like, it's not like Hecuba has had one kid who's in her 20s. She's supposed to have, like... 50 sons who are in their 20s which like obviously yeah is not realistic but she's supposed to have a lot of kids by this point who are older and so you know to have a lot of kids who are now adults you do have to be like you know an older woman older women in things petition yes yes all right time for my one very petty gripe unrelated to any of the stuff that we've talked about so far and then if you have any remaining petty gripes we can cover them and then i think we can wrap okay so here's my petty gripe during the time that paris is in sparta he goes on like another one of his sex past walks with helen and is pestering her as he does and (laughs) she like stops him and i don't know lectures him about the importance of troy's geography for a hot second which is the only reason i know that anybody involved in this show knew anything about it and then she's like have you ever heard the story of Acteon? which for those who don't know it it's this guy he was a hunter i think he was he's like a prince um he's a prince of thebes i believe And he was out hunting one day and he stumbled into a clearing where there was a spring and bathing in the spring was the goddess Artemis, who was naked. And she, you know, if you know anything about Artemis, she's strongly anti-men because she's a big lesbian. And that's not canon, but it's canon in my heart. (laughs) Uh, She's a big lesbian and she's like, no men allowed. And as punishment for looking upon her without her consent... She turns him into a stag, and then he gets chased down and torn into pieces by his own hunting dogs. Helen relays this story. And when she gets to the middle of the story and is like, yes, he he saw the goddess naked, she says, the goddess Diana. (laughs) What the record 
show that I have leaned back and put my hands over my face. You know, I think they're going to be able to hear it in the audio that you have, like, <sighs> your soul has left your body. My soul has left my body. For those who don't know, Diana is the Roman name for the equivalent goddess. It was certainly not being used by fucking Helen of Sparta, who spoke Greek. <laughs> this made me so angry. And then, as I was sitting there having a apoplexy from rage watching this scene she finishes telling the story and the camera cuts over to Paris who says maybe it was worth it I I cannot explain the degree to which I wanted to like just die instantly. I wanted the earth to open up and swallow me so that I did not have to watch the last 10 minutes of this episode. <laughs> it was so bad. I It made me so angry. Oh, God. Okay. Um, okay, so now time for my petty gripe, which is that there's a scene where, like, people are bringing stuff to Menelaus, I think. I think there's some gifts being given to Menelaus. It's like a I think it's a distinct scene from the one where Paris gives gifts to Menelaus. Yeah, I know. There's what like you're a second about. scene where people are giving gifts to Menelaus. Anyway, they're like this thing from Minoa. Um, although they say Minoa, a, a, a gift from Minoa. So the Minoans are called the Minoans not because there's a place called Minoa that exists, but after King Minos, because the person who excavated Knossos, one of the like big Minoan cities, thought Knossos looked kind of like a labyrinth. Um, which, like, if you don't know, there's a tale about King Minos of Crete and his like labyrinth. Um, That's where the Minotaur comes from. Yes. So no, there is no place called Minoa. Did they do any research? No. Probably not. No. I think they maybe read Wikipedia, but honestly, like, Wikipedia gives much better information than this show, so I don't know what they did. I don't know what they were thinking. But, I mean, hey, you're welcome to hire either of us as ancient world consultants on your show. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the moral of this episode is that we hate Paris. We hate him so much. This is a badly written character. I will say, though, nobody's acting was noticeably terrible. No. <laughs> the acting is fine. Yeah, the acting in this is totally fine. It's just, they're just given bad material. Yep. All of the material is not good. Yeah. Um, I mean, none of the, like, like line-to-line writing is super, super no. bad either. Like, most of it's fine, and the acting is fine. It's just, like, structurally... As, like, a narrative, it doesn't make any sense. And everything they do with all of the ancient material is bad. Yes. In Uh. every way. (laughs) Again, I'm not necessarily a huge stickler for accuracy. I just want people to do interesting things. Yes. I want people to use their brain cells to, like, say something about a text. Like... Maybe. Maybe have, have a plot and theme, maybe, you know, that is coherent. Yeah. That would be nice. 
if you just want to tell a story about a guy being a sex pest and causing problems in some kind of ancient time period, just write a period rom-com instead of adapting the Iliad. Yes, I think that is a much better idea. Or you just, like, do a, a biography of Ovid who was a sex pest, was an actual sex pest. He wrote a man, he wrote a whole manual about how to be a sex pest. Um, it's called the Ars Amatoria. Don't so. worry, Allison. We will watch Ovid and the Art of Love. Thanks for listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com or contacted via Twitter at classicallypod. Finally, some acknowledgements. We'd first like to thank Nicholas Judy and Dark Fantasy Studio, who produced our wonderful music. We would also like to thank the Society for Classical Studies for their help in supporting this podcast. As mentioned, this is the first of four episodes on Troy, Fall of a City. In two weeks, we will be back to discuss episodes two and three. Until then, best wishes, and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did.